Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now on this equity market is Nadia Lovell, Senior Equity Strategist at UBS Global Wealth Management. Nadia, I've been teeing this interview up over the last hour or so. You and the team out with your outlook. 5,000 next year, but not year-end, in June of next year, and then only an extra 100 points from there over the next six months. Can you walk me through the trajectory of the next 12 months that you're looking to play out? Absolutely. You know, we believe that 2022 will really be a year of discovery for both markets and individuals. As we know, the last two years have been somewhat unusual, but next year we think that financial markets will discover what normal looks like from a growth and an inflation standpoint. We really think it will be a year of two halves, so that's why you see the spread between our price targets for mid-year and year-end. The first half being elevated economic growth, so we're looking for growth in the range of 4 to 5% and high inflation. But as the year really progresses and things normalize, we're looking for the second half to be lower growth, still healthy and above trend and more subdued inflation. So we think in that environment, the S&P can reach 5,000 by the time we get to June of next year. Nadia, are you looking right now at what's going on in Europe as a blip or a potential risk scenario that could move over to the U.S. should this pandemic start to pick up again? Absolutely. Uh, we always watch the COVID cases very closely. Yes, the rise in cases overseas is concerning, and that could translate into the U.S. We've seen this pattern played out before. That's why we don't think that we're out of the woods, and that's why we continue to believe that the Fed will be patient. There are areas of the economy that has recovered from COVID, but there's still areas that are still on the mend, particularly on the service side. And so we don't think that the Fed will be overly aggressive, as particularly as COVID cases haven't fully resolved yet. How important is an inflation call for you, Nadia? We had a Bloomberg Business Week cover story on this by Katie Greifeld pointing out that if you make the wrong call here, as a strategist, it's very bad. If you make the right call, you are potentially a hero for decades. Absolutely. You know, the inflation numbers is something we're watching closely, but we do think that inflation will become more subdued in next year. As we know, much of the spike in inflation is being driven by the more flexible component of an inflation basket. So things that reprice more quickly, food, energy, auto, hotels. If you look at the core flexible CPI, it's up nearly 15 percent. But while inflation is broadening out to some of the more sticky areas, we do think that the more flexible elements will normalize in 2022. And so we're looking for inflation to get slightly under 2% by the time we get to end of December 2022. There's one thing missing from this call, Nadia, that I wonder if clients have picked up on as well. No rate hikes until 23. Inflation to subside down towards 1.8% by the end of next year. Got all that. Very bullish at the index level. 5K by the middle of next year. I look through the preferred sectors. Energy, financials, discretionary health Care. There's one thing that's missing. When you talk me through that macro backdrop, inflation, the Fed, patient, where's investment? Where's the IT story? Where's the information technology story in your equity market call? Yes, we're neutral on tech at the moment. But again, with COVID cases rises, 
you know, we know we do typically see volatility in those more reinflation trades as well as a reopening trade. And so there is room for tech in the portfolio over the long term. And so on pullbacks on tech, meaningful pullbacks on tech, we always advise clients to add to longer term position. But headed into 2022, we just think that there's better growth opportunities in the more cyclical areas of the market. And so that's why we have a position that way. But if we do see a sustainable rise in the COVID cases, we do know that people take shelter in tech. So that is uh, an opportunity. Nadia, really thoughtful stuff as always and good to catch up. Thanks for sharing your outlook with us. Nadia Lovell there of UBS. Thank you. Joining us now is Jim O'Sullivan, Chief U.S. Market Strategist, Macro Strategist at TD Securities. Jim, arguably with the biggest call that we've been talking about over the last week, we caught up with your colleague Priya Misra about it. Waiting until December 2023 to hike interest rates. You're at the very far end of the range of the people we talk to right now, Jim. Why can they wait that long? Hi, Jonathan. Good morning. Well, I mean, obviously, it's hard to be very specific on, on exact timing, but our point broadly is that momentum will be down over the next year. Now, obviously, if you simply extrapolate where we are now, growth looks very strong, unemployment is falling, inflation is way, way too strong. And if you simply extrapolate, then of course, the Fed would have to tighten. But I mean, the key key issue is what momentum is going to look like over the next year. And we do think, despite the uh, the budget bill being worked on in Congress and would, will probably ultimately be enacted, uh, that there will be significant fiscal drag in 2022. So the budget deficit will go from basically around 12% of GDP in fiscal 2021 to around 5% in fiscal 2022. Now, there are some offsets, but we think the net of this is going to be pretty significant downward momentum. So I think it'll feel quite different as we get toward the middle of next year in terms of momentum and growth, as well as inflation. And um, so we'll see where we stand at that point. And obviously, the Fed has bought themselves some time with tapering. I mean, they've got a seven-month tapering, so that won't wind down till June. I mean, we would say the bar for accelerating that is extremely high. So we'll see where we stand, obviously, as we get toward the middle of next year. But we think momentum is going to be down between now and then. This is really interesting to me that a lot of people have come on and they've said it doesn't really matter how much inflation does come down next year. If it starts coming down, it will edify the Fed's, it will edify the Fed's position. Do you think that that's true or does it need to drop a certain amount and by a certain date for it to actually support where the Fed's uh, approach is actually right now? I think, I mean, meaningful slowing. Um, I mean, the, the year-over-year numbers are still going to be quite strong, of course, because you're not going to drop out all these high numbers for a while until the, 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 the recent strong month-over-month numbers drop out and the 12-month change numbers are elevated. But we'll see what momentum is like on a monthly basis. Um, I mean, do you have to get to 2% year-over-year? Absolutely not to, be, to, be, to, to hold off and tightening. But that brings in the other part of the mandate. If you get enough slowing on inflation, uh, the focus turns back, I think, to where they stand on the mandate on employment, and um, there is a lot of debate right now about what is maximum employment. Obviously, yeah. the wage number is pretty strong. The participation rate numbers have been disappointing. But yet, payrolls are down 4 million plus from pre-COVID levels. So, I mean, this is going to be an important debate over the next year. Yeah. What is maximum employment? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that too, Jim. I mean, maybe um, there have been such structural changes that this is just the new normal. You know, if you can't get employees through the door, even if you're raising wages, raising wages, um, and there are so many jobs out there that anyone could get one, how are we not at maximum employment already? Yeah, well, I mean, if you, again, if you simply extrapolate current numbers, including jolts numbers, job openings, where the participation rate is, et cetera, what the wage numbers are doing, then you'd say on the surface, sure, it looks like maximum employment. But everything is so distorted right now by COVID. 
I mean, we had the Delta wave um, over the last several months, which clearly contributed to preventing the participation rate from starting to improve again, despite the expiration of unemployment benefits, et cetera. So, I mean, it's, it's too soon to really just take these numbers literally, given that we're still in the midst of, of the pandemic. And so we'll see where we are in a year's time. I mean, I think most Fed officials would say they would not be satisfied that this is the new normal in terms of the level of employment and maximum employment. I think they want to get these people back. It might take time and there will be lags, but they, they, they do expect most of these people to come back. Not all of them. And certainly there are. I thought most of them were retired. I thought most of them just had done so well on the market that they stepped out and bid adieu. And well, I mean, the, the nature of those data is that, I mean, people retire and then they unretire. I mean, so it, people do go back and forth in those numbers. And um, a lot of what we've seen is people not coming back into the labor force having retired previously. So, again, I think it's too soon to just simply assume that the participation rate is, is going to stay where it is. And I think we, we would expect to see recovery over the next year. It's not all going to happen in one month. And certainly most Fed officials, I mean, obviously, particularly if it's, it's Brainerd as the chair, we would say, but even, even with Powell as well, uh, would be hopeful and would expect that, there, that most of these people can come back with time. Jim, just quickly, Lisa's been on top of this one through most of this morning. Just how much daylight is there between Chairman Powell and Governor Brainerd? You've been waiting for the same decision we've been waiting for. You're a Fed watcher yourself. How much daylight is there between the two? Um, I mean, on monetary policy, obviously, there's talk about regulatory policies being a bit more clear, clearly different. But on monetary policy, not necessarily huge. But, but yes, I mean, I would say most people would say that Brainard is, is, is likely to be more dovish. She's more likely to have a dervish interpretation of maximum employment, we would say. Um, but again, I mean, Powell is, is pretty dovish as well. Jim O'Sullivan, a TD. Jim, you're confusing us all. <laughs> Thank you, sir, as always. We spoke with Dr. Andrew Pekosh earlier this morning on Bloomberg Surveillance, and we were talking a lot about the situation over in Europe. And since then, in the fast-moving news plot <laughs> that is the pandemic, we got the approval by the FDA of COVID-19 booster shots from Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech. The question I have really is, how much more protection do you get from the booster, and how much can this stave off something from happening in the United States from what's happening, say, in Germany and Austria? Yeah. Dr. Andrew Pekosh is joining us again, and we really appreciate it. Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health, professor and virologist. What's your sense, Dr. Pekosh, of how much we can prevent another surge in viral cases as a result of more people getting boosters? Well, you know, boosters will do two things. Um, one is it will almost immediately increase your protection against infection. And some of the data suggests that it'll get back up to that 90% level that we saw in the early studies. The second thing that is starting to come out, though, is that that booster, particularly if you get it six months after your first doses, seems to be able to induce a much longer immune response. And therefore, you might be protected for six months, a year, maybe more. Um, um, after the booster. So it's doing those two things. But at the end of the day, it's targeting people who are already being protected from infection and from severe infection. So it's going to move the needle a little bit, but, but it's not going to be a game changer in terms of protecting us from uh, surges of COVID-19 because that's driven by unvaccinated people. And Dr. Pickers, going to that point, the unvaccinated people, you know, I'm just not sure what more can be done? I'm just speaking here in the U.S. For those folks who choose not to get vaccinated, it feels like 
this is our future. This is just the way it's going to be. We've, I mean, the, the arguments have been made time and time again, and the decisions seemingly have been made, and maybe some mandates can move the needle a little bit, whether it's a workplace mandate or a government mandate, but is this kind of the new normal? Well, what we need to realize is that individuals who don't get vaccinated, you know, really shouldn't have free reign to be able to do anything they want because of the threat that they pose to the rest of the population. Now, this could be mitigated in some ways. Uh, twice a week testing could be one way to, 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 to target those populations. Um, limiting them from certain activities um, is another way to do it. So we're moving to the stage now where it may be that man, vaccine mandates alone won't be able to do this, but putting in some of those other restrictions may be a way to get us through these surges and minimize those, uh, those massive uh, pushes of cases into our hospitals, which stress our medical care system. Dr. Pekosh, theoretically, let's say there is a family, and let's say it's almost Thanksgiving, and one member of the family is not vaccinated. Where is the biggest risk here? Is it for the person who's not vaccinated being exposed to uh, people who are all vaccinated but still could get the virus? Or is it people who are vaccinated getting the virus from the person who's unvaccinated? Theoretically. So, so, so theoretically, if you're vaccinated and, and you're exposed, you come into contact with someone who's infected and not exposed, you do have a higher risk of getting the infection. But your risk of getting into the hospital after that is much, much reduced because of the protection the vaccine gives you. Now, this does change a little bit if you talk about things like people with pre-existing conditions that predispose you to more severe disease, or even the elderly, in which case we know that the vaccines work, but they don't work as well as they do in the healthy populations. So it's also about those more vulnerable populations and the increasing the exposure of those individuals to the virus if, if you are unvaccinated. So, Dr. Pekos, one thing that we haven't talked about recently, I don't think, is the concept of herd immunity. Is that something that, given the level of uh, unvaccinated population, that's really not really on the table? Um, it's, it's not on the table anymore from a practical state because with the emergence of the Delta variant, some of the estimates of what we need for herd immunity are now in the 85% or sometimes higher uh, part of the population getting vaccinated. And that just doesn't seem realistic given what we see right now. We can, however, control the severe cases with vaccines. The, the soon-to-be-approved antiviral treatments will give us another uh, important tool that will help us reduce the disease severity. And so we have the tools to, to, to really minimize the difficult effects of this virus on the population, we just have to be more effective at using them. Before we let you go, Dr. Pekosh, going back to what's going on in Europe with the Austria lockdown and the potential for Germany to do the same, is there any way that you could see U.S. lockdowns at some point in the future, considering the fact that the vaccination rate here is similar to what we see in those nations? Well, it's interesting because while the overall vaccination rate is similar, we have a lot more variation from state to state in terms of how many individuals are vaccinated. So in my state of Maryland here, I feel a little bit more confident than I would if I was in another state in terms of how much protection is being afforded by the vaccine. It, it doesn't appear to me that there's political will to go through lockdowns on a massive nationwide level, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of the states that have been 
good about their public health interventions to control COVID-19, do consider some additional um, measures if cases do surge again this winter. Andrew Pekosh, thank you so much for being with us. Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health professor and virologist joining us today. Hugo Rogers joins us now, Chief Investment Officer at Dowtech Bank and Trust. Hugo, this equity market, you can't hold it down. We're down a tenth on the S&P, NASDAQ at all-time highs, NASDAQ 100 futures up another 53 this morning, restrictions back in Europe, shrug of the shoulders over here stateside. Hugo, what do you make of all of this? Well, you've got a trifecta of tailwinds that's still in place. You still have monetary support. You still have incrementalism from central banks there reining things in, but very, very slowly, as Lisa highlighted. You've got economic tailwinds as well. So you have the US Q4 GDP estimates are actually being ticked up a little bit. You've had excellent Q3 results from large swathes of, of, uh, of, um, of US corporates, as they've reported. So there's, um, there's and then, you know, the, the final piece is, um, so you've got central banks, you've got a cycle, and then you've just got this, this wall of liquidity sitting there too. The bond market, even though inflation, this is a big bow one, the bond market, even though inflation hit 6.2% last week, you know, the 10-year yield's still at 1.6465. Yeah. It's like, it, it tells you all you need to know. Uh, but Hugo, that's exactly where I wanted to go, this sort of discomfort here with high inflation reads and very low bond yields. And you have some people like Wharton professor Jeremy Siegel coming out yesterday on Bloomberg Television and saying people are not prepared for how fast, how quickly the Federal Reserve will have to hike rates, will have to normalize once inflation shows its persistency. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, you, there's, there's a lot of work being done there by what they have to do, you know, if they haven't budged when 6.2 is is the inflation print and when core inflation is north of three and still looking persistent and you know on our estimates we're going to see those core numbers continue rising you know you can see what wages are doing you can see what rents are doing they're the core components of core inflation so you know we know that numbers the core number is going to be higher for a period of time and yet they're still holding back they're still being incremental um the communication that you saw from the Fed, you've seen from the ECB, tells you that they're going to do absolutely everything to, to, to try, not try to ignore it, but to, yeah. to avoid some sort of taper tantrum. They don't think their work is done in terms of fixing the economy. So why would they, why would they perform such an aggressive U-turn? We don't right. think they do. So, so the market, I mean, the market's already priced in two or three hikes for the U.S., uh, four or five hikes for the U.K. Why does the market actually think these super doves, I mean, when you compare them to somebody like Paul Volcker, right, these are incredibly dovish Fed governors. Why does Mr. Market think they would raise rates that much? Well, uh, no, I think, I think they can raise rates that much. Um, Look, the, the market is always ahead of the Fed. You can see that whenever you're looking at the, at the, at the forward rates implied and, and, and against the dot plot. You can see on the way down the, the Fed was two hawks expecting mean reversion. And, and now on the way up, they're, they're, what they're communicating will be behind the curve. The market can, can swallow three rate hikes. It's already priced them and the, the equity market hasn't moved that much. But three rate hikes is... Always remember where we're coming from. We're coming from zero. So 
so three rate hikes is just taking us back to to like 75 bips, 75 to to one percent on rates. And the uh, the question really is, can the economy handle that? And I think what people are, are really forgetting here is that this economy is not being held back by demand. Rates they that affects demand. You know, it's 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 um, financial conditions, credit conditions that affects demand. Right now, the economy is being held back by supply. So if you raise rates and you, you're, you're tweaking demand, that's not really what's going to what, what's going to affect jobs and growth. So you've got some some freedom to to, to see um, rates rise without an effect on the actual underlying economy. And so the market's very comfortable with that. Hugo, it's going to catch up. I always dislike you at the end of the interview, Hugo from the Bahamas, Hugo Rogers from the Bahamas. <laughs> it just it winds me up, Hugo. Hugo Rogers of Downtech Bank. Oh, I hate to wind you up. Have a lovely day. <laughs> you too, sir. Good to see you, buddy. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.